Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha. Thanks for being here. I am just popping up to let you know what is happening on the show this week. So Kieran Yates is our host today as we take a listen to her conversation with dubstep royalty Mala recorded at RA's 21st birthday celebrations in Manchester. Having a completely dark room, Mm. it kind of allowed people that may feel conscious of themselves. You know, you can't see anybody to to be self-conscious. So I think it uh, allowed a sense of freedom. This chat contains tales of fierce independence, balancing science and emotion and growing with your community. I must let you know that the audio quality is not the best for the beginning. Um, so, so sorry about that. It was a live show and the essence of that is very much captured. But the stories are so brilliant. I really hope that you enjoy Mala on RA's Exchange. Okay, hello everybody and welcome to this resident advisor event in conversation with the mighty Mala. My name is Kieran Yates and it's my absolute pleasure to be here chatting to you as a fan, as a music journalist, as you know, someone who's attended a lot of your parties and got a lot of joy from them. Um, and I think maybe this intro sort of says it better than I can from one of your recent features. There are a few artists who can rightly claim to have helped create a new genre of music in the 21st century. One of them is Mala. Can please have a round of applause? So I guess lots of conversations that you must have kind of um, start with going back because you've got such a, a kind of a rich archival history. I want to hear about DMZ and kind of the, the gap that it was filling for you. But can you tell me about some of those formative club experiences? And, you know, did did you feel like... So something was awakened in you that wasn't before? Or... Do you mean when we started DMZ or before that? Before that, like you as a sort of dancer? Or... Yeah, yeah, for, mm. for sure. We were really lucky because at the age of um, 14, um, there used to be an under 18 event called, um, it was called Crazy Dance. <laughs> and cool. it was at a venue called Metropo- uh, Metropole, which was in Purley. Yeah. So from my area in South Norwood, you used to get one bus to Croydon mm. and then you get another bus from Croydon to Purley. Mm. I don't know how parents back then let their kids go, but it was like a Wednesday night and it would start from like six and it would finish at half 10 mm. or something on a Wednesday night, yeah? And when I say we, I'm talking about like Koki, Pokes and a couple of other friends from school. Um, we would go and we kind of got, we kind of got, uh, kind of got in with the guys that were organizing the place. And we were saying to them, you've got to get the jungle DJs down. You've got to get the Mickey Finn and the Kenny Ken and the Randall and Brocky. Mm. And eventually they did. Because basically it used to be like a resident DJ that would play all the kind of like, you know, kind of like 90s chart music, 90s R&B, a little bit of like commercial drum and bass, Mm. um, but nothing like hardcore. And most of the kids that used to go there wanted, you know, we all listened to jungle music when we were kids. So it wasn't like you wanted something commercial. You wanted the real thing. And eventually they they got the real thing in. And that's when things changed for me because I started emceeing at these jungle, at these, for these jungle DJs as a 14 year old. 
And I've had all of these old cassettes. What kind of me. things were you um, seeing about at 14? Just like, <laughs> I was just like a, I was like a confident 14 year old you know so I was just you know it's not like what the 14 year olds are talking about today you know when you listen to like drill music it's far from that it was just kind of about raving you know yeah okay just trying to make up rhymes but yeah so from that age you know playing with people like Randall and Kenny Ken and stuff uh, so so from a young age I was already involved in going to clubs and I got very much into house music at the age of like 15, 16. Mm. An ex-girlfriend, uh, her older cousins used to go to a lot of clubs at Camden Palace and places like this in London. So I, used to, I, I, I would go along as well. And yeah, this is kind of like people like, like Jeremy Healy and um, oh, Brandon Block. It's like this kind of mad like kind of hard house I don't even know what you would call it mm. but yeah I used to go and I used to enjoy this music as well and then the garage scene came along I was involved in that I used to MC it at places like twice as nice um, so I enjoyed that as well like for me like it was always about ex being able to explore music and I think that was always the the beautiful thing about music mm -hmm. is just being able to explore all of it you know and of course, like a lot of the conversation about what was commercially viable in terms of club culture at the time was that sort of slickness of, of the champagne dance that associated to like garage and the sort of, you know, the VIP party vibe. What, I mean, that's, that's to me the total opposite of what DMZ night feels like. Yeah. So was that intentional? Was it kind of resisting that? How did, you know, how did you construct this response to what was happening yeah, in I guess it was kind of like culturally things that were happening, not just for me, but like my, 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 my kind of like my colleague, shall we say it as well. Um, but also I signed a record deal with EMI when I was, uh, when I was 20 mm. for a single and thank God it went wrong. Um, not really like, it was a great opportunity because I got to experience what working for a major record label was like mm. and what having a manager and, and it was awful because, um, as a youngster, I was kind of pushed on a pedestal that I never asked to be on. And in a way, you, as a youngster, you're kind of, I was kind of sold all of these dreams as well. Mm -hmm. So when it didn't happen, you know, I went from touring these singles and, you know, thinking I'm going to be able to look after my family with some sort of pop career or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, it was a garage track that, 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 that was signed. So going back to like a call center job and not that there's anything wrong with that <clears throat> but i was doing a i was doing like debt recovery for people that hadn't paid like 13 pound on their car insurance mm -hmm. and it was like mm -hmm. shit was depressing yeah, yeah. so going from up there and then going back from and going say in my in my world it was going back going down there yeah. worse than where i started in the middle say I, I i remember saying to myself i'm never going to allow myself to be misrepresented again because that whole episode with the major label that song and everything it was it felt like a complete misrepresentation when the shit crashed mm -hmm. so that's why i say i give thanks that things panned out the way that they did um so off of the back of that mm -hmm. i became fiercely independent mm -hmm. which i am still to this day anybody that knows me knows that <laughs> um so yeah, I guess that was my my yeah. my way of going forward because mm -hmm. it wasn't about a VIP section where you exclude some people like DMZ um, as well as Forward. You know, they were about including everybody. It was about one space. It was about a unity. You know, mm -hmm. you know, back in DMZ, people used to come behind and look in your record box when you're taking your dubs out, and mm -hmm. everybody knows that at our dances, people used to if they wanted a rewind 
a lot of the audience would just come to the front and press stop on the record, you know. And uh, we accepted that, you know, and it was it was perfectly fine. But there were also some kind of aside from the music and the sort of you know this, this sort of ideology of like an open space and a democratic space. There were some intentional logistical things that you did, like trying to make the club dark, for instance, and you know, and I think. Is this true? Was this an urban myth about you ask when you, in 2015 when you did your boiler room, asking them to have it as dark as it could yeah, possibly go? That was yeah. Talk to us about the, that. Well, that was just the criteria, you know. It was mm -hmm. about I hate being recorded. Um, I don't like being my sets really being recorded. I don't like to be video recorded. Um, it's just that thing. I feel I feel like when you um, when you go into a studio, if you're in the studio and you've ever done vocals and you see the red light go on and it says like you're on air, yeah. that on air light flashing yeah. for me instantly changes. It's almost like I've got to put on a pair of like tap dancing shoes and start dancing or something. Mm -hmm. It feels very forced and very, uh, yeah, it just feels so uncomfortable. So having a completely dark room, mm -hmm. it kind of allowed people that may feel conscious of themselves you know, you can't see anybody to, to be self-conscious. So I think it uh, allowed a sense of freedom. Mm -hmm. And it also was like, it wasn't about the DJ that was playing or the people who's behind the, I don't know, the, the VIP area or the DJ line. Yeah. It was all inclusive. So we just tried to create a space that felt like, you, you kind of like an extension of our living room, really. You know, when you invite someone into your house and you're just playing music, playing records, and mm -hmm. everyone's on a vibe, you know, that's kind of like what we try to create with DMZ, really. You know, mm -hmm. what did it What did it feel like to be part of Forward as kind of a participant and a dancer and a DJ? Like, how do you think back to that time? I think like when you ever. The, the most the thing I take from it most is about it's about discovery. You know, whenever you discover something for yourself, you kind of it kind of becomes yours. Yeah. And those were those are my memories of when I used to go to Forward. It's like, yeah, this place is is kind of ours because you're discovering so much new music. And at that time, we knew that that music couldn't be heard anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that 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 generates something interesting. I don't know what it is. Mm. Um, it bred life, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. And part of the reason, I mean, I think there's a couple of reasons that people are emotionally connected to the scene, but especially DMZ. But club culture particularly is because, as we were discussing, you know, we find ourselves in a moment where, you know, in, in lots of the major cities in the UK, we're seeing a sort of, you know, a... A, a very kind of troubling landscape for our clubs and being decimated from the inside out. And I'm sort of interested, you know, as, as we're kind of talking in the midst of recession and kind of austerity creeping, this this kind of takes us back to what was happening in 2008. And of course, when a lot of dubstep parties were happening, a lot of producers were making work. You know, what, what was some of the, the optimism or some of the discussions that were being had then that not that we can use now, but ju they just kept you optimistic about making work in, in sort of a very brutal economic time and political time. I guess to some extent, you either do or you don't, right? Like you either make use of what you have in front of you in your situation or you don't. Like I've never seen my life in any other way. You either, you know, like when we were, when we were making music, we sent our music to a couple of record labels. They weren't interested. Mm. 
some people may say, okay, my music's not good enough. I've got to try another label. But we were like, fuck that. Let's just do our own thing. Let's work a little bit of extra overtime, save our money, you, you know, find out how to press a record, press a record and how do we distribute? Okay, you go to all the record shops by yourself in, in, in London and go to that shop. I remember I remember Soldier's records in London. I remember the first couple of DMZ records. They didn't take them. So they're like, we wouldn't know where to put this on the shelf. Like, what is this? Really? And then uh, I remember coming to Koki's DMZ record, which was DMZ uh, 4, which was um, mm-hmm. Mud and... Uh, no, not Mud. Sorry, Mood, Dub and um, Officer. Mm-hmm. I remember dropping a box of records to Soldier's and then by the time I went from Soho back to East Croydon, uh, John, who used to work there at the time, had already left a message on my phone saying, can you come back with another box? We've already sold out. That's when I knew things started changing. Mm. But I guess it's that thing, just going back to what I was saying, like I've always been like, if no one's, I don't wait for no one to do something for me. You do it, you do it yourself. And I think maybe those were the conversations that were being had because I think at that time um, within our dubstep community, shall we say, Everyone was just very, very proactive mm. and proactive in a way where you wanted everybody to elevate because it meant if one person grew, it meant we all grew. Mm. That changes later when more money gets involved and everybody starts spreading out. Those things, you know, those things change. Mm-hmm. Um, but in those early times, there was no, uh, the competition was friendly, shall we say. It was like sparring, you know, you know, if you train boxing, you spar to get yourself better. It felt like that, you know, you... That's that's that. Those were the that, that was kind of like the mentality, and the the unspoken conversation that was happening all of the time. So before it gets into the sort of bro step hellscape element, it kind of yeah. I think we're like you know when when sort of there's a there's a lot of like major label intervention, which I think like Muddy's part of the sort of community. There's what happens is often what happens in music journalism where, you know, the music's given a name and there is a genre classification and, and dubstep is, is a way to articulate this like broad, like breadth of music. Um, this is obviously like still a discussion and a debate about the extent to which music journalists should like classify, um, you know, sounds. But, what, you know, what was your sense at the time? Did it feel like this is great, this really represents the scene that I'm in and this feels valuable to me or... Do you, do you have complicated feelings about I always it? felt like once you put something out in public, it's no longer yours. Right. And that was whether you give it to your people or it goes further afield to people that you have absolutely no idea or digesting your music. And that obviously happened in America, going, you know, following on from what you're saying. And I think, again, you can look at it two ways. You know, there was many people that looked at it like, oh, these men are taking food off our plate and, you know... And I was just like grateful that we had inspired people to go on and do their thing. That's why I've always created music is to maybe just for a split second, it allows somebody to think for themselves. Mm. So therefore, if you're thinking for yourself, you should therefore put your take on what it is you're being inspired by. And I think that's what happened with the whole bro step thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think, I think it, a lot of it's a million miles away from what maybe purists would consider to be dubstep if people want to call that dubstep then so be it like it never really right, bothered right. me like that and everybody thinks that it did or i must hate skrillex or i must hate <laughs> xyz because they consider me to be this you know this figure but i've always been very open like that and very um also inspired that people can really take it and, and do their thing with it you know 
but also very open about the fact that um, you see the lineage as a, having direct connections to sound system culture. Um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you draw those connections. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's just where I grew up. You know, if you speak to distance here, yeah, it has a completely different mm -hmm. influences and, and, and lineage with regards to the music that he made, even though we are considered to be in the same genre. So, you know, mine was jungle. And then if you look at the lineage of, of jungle, mm -hmm. maybe you get sound systems. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I don't think it's exclusive to that. Always in these situations, I guess whoever whoever makes the most amount of noise, you get to hear their story. Mm -hmm. And in this case, you get to hear my story because for some reason I'm, you know, mm -hmm. what we done made a lot of noise and I was considered to be a central figure in that. Um, but yeah, cutting dub plates, playing on a big sound system, I just thought that was the way it was always done. It wasn't kind of like trying to uh, respect any lineage as such, mm -hmm. it was more just being honest because I thought that's just what people enjoyed when they went out to mm -hmm. clubs, you know, is hearing music that they've never heard before and hearing it on the best sound system possible. Mm -hmm. I would always feel bad, you know, if people came into DMZ and the sound system sounded terrible. But I, I don't, wouldn't, I'd kind of want to give people their money back. And we nearly did, <laughs> we, we actually did that. Really? Yeah, yeah. We did one event in um, we did one event in Brixton one time, right. and we had a problem with the sound system. So we would just let everybody come in for free. This wasn't DMZ. This was one of my events. But that's how it goes, you know. Mm -hmm. Like I don't know, it's it's your audience that 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 create you ultimately, you know. Um, so they should be looked after. And and tell me a little bit about um, you know, I know you talk about sort of revealing uh, music from sort of like uh, that has a dub lineage mm -hmm. to some of the older artists so you know revealing sort of music heard in a different way what were some of those responses and how did that make you feel well when we first played in leeds um we i first played in leeds back in 2005 maybe maybe it was 2004 and pokes myself and koki we went up on the mega bus and it was <laughs> november i remember getting off the mega bus seeing the Northern lasses in December <laughs> as they are. And we were like, raw, it's like cold outside. <laughs> anyway, we went into the dance. I was playing, I was playing in the back. So Subdub is a, a legendary event in Leeds. It's been running for 25 years this year. We played the 25th year anniversary earlier, uh, last month. Anyway, um, so in the main room, you had Iration Steppers with their sound system. In the back room, you had Earth Pipe, which was another sound system. And they, a drum and bass event called Transmission used to go on there. So I was playing kind of like the second set, which was like 11.30 till one. I remember after about 15 minutes of playing, you know what I mean, the, my beelines were working the sound system and the whole shit cut off. So we had to wait for about 10 minutes for them to get the sound system amps to kind of like charge up again or whatever, just to turn back on from being shorted. And um, everybody stayed. Now after that event, um, Simon, the guy that runs Subdub said, do you want to come and bring DMZ up to Leeds? So when we brought DMZ to Leeds, at first we did it in the back room, but it was getting too busy in the back room. Mm. So we got we basically did our own event and took over the main room. And Mark Iration, fiercely militant sound system guy, and he would like, you know, he would say stuff like, This ain't like you lot are saying dubstep, but there ain't I can't hear the dub, it sounds like techno and da-da-da. <laughs> but for us, like I didn't feel offended by that because 
I think when you are a young girl, it's for you to earn your stripes. You know what I mean? If you're going into someone's den, a lion's den, you know what I mean? You've got to go in there and stand your ground. Mm. And that's what we did. And, we, you know, we went back and we went back and we went back and we went back. And then all of a sudden, Mark's like, okay, it was only when we play in on his sound system on a regular basis and we're hitting beelines harder than they are, yeah. then they start understanding that actually, even though what we do is different from them, there's a lot of similarities. Mm. And ultimately, it's about unity and bringing people together. So... Years down the line, you know, um, I like to put on events, which we do. We did a weekend. We did. A week, we do a weekender in Bristol, um, where we do. The Friday night is mainly 140, and we bring someone from drum and bass as well. Mm-hmm. And then on the Saturday night, will be we bring like Jar Shaka or Channel One or Abashanti to come and play, because I do think there is there is an it's important to make those connections mm-hmm. to a younger generation, you know. I remember being outside an event one time and somebody was kind of a little bit, um, somebody I was with was questioning me like, because the younger that was speaking to me had had no idea who I was. So the guy that I was with was like, rah, he should know who you are, he's in your dance and da 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 da. But like for an 18 year old just coming up now, why should he care about what I did 15 years ago? You understand? So it's my responsibility now as an artist to still be relevant so I can make what I did 15, 20 years ago still relevant to a young audience coming out today, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, for me, it's about working with the younger generation, you know? And that's what Deep Medi's been about for me. Is it's, it's been about constantly working with, with, with new generation to be inspired by the younger generation. Um, so, yeah, kind of like as much as like the lineage is important, it's actually <laughs> it's what's happening today which will be the lineage of, uh, for the people who come through tomorrow. So, you know, I don't worry about the past so much, you know. That's true, but I think that I speak for the room when I say that you have you have an impact, you know, for kind of a lot of young producers and, you know, you're, you're like, you come up a lot as sort of influence and inspiration, although not so much with your own kids, you were, you were saying. You're, <laughs> your, your kids aren't biggest malafans were you saying that or, or are they, no, are they I'm, growing I'm, on you no no I'm, I'm, ha- I'm happy that my kids are, are strong-minded and strong-hearted enough to say dad I don't really like that track I much prefer this like that's that's perfectly okay with me but I know what's going to happen is when they're 18 and they want guest lists <laughs> you know what I mean then it will come back around so no it's cool I had a funny conversation with Giles Peterson about that yeah. when his kids were teenagers and uh, he said the same thing to me oh, my son don't think I'm cool at all but I think his son's older now and uh, you know uh, yeah you know he wants to DJ or be on radio so you know, you can't, if you want to be a radio DJ, Giles Peterson has to be one of the best to learn from, right? So, mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit, I mean, you know, I think it's easy to talk about nostalgia, but it really brings us into our current moment. And obviously we talked about the state of club culture and, and I know that you are not living in the UK, but what does it feel like when you sort of return to, you know, seeing the landscape of places like London and seeing what, you know, the sort of the dance music landscape looks and feels like? Yeah, it's really hard to say, to be honest with you, because, I, you know, I've been moving in and out of London for 13 years. It's uh, mm-hmm. the same age as my oldest. So um, it's hard for me to be, to give any kind of depth on, on, on that question because I haven't been here for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, are, there, are there things that you keep your eye on, kind of kind of social media-wise or just like party-wise that come, yeah, come across kids. your <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, it's hard, you know. It's different. It's different when you get to this age, you know. Yeah. Uh, 
your outlook on life changes and, and, and what becomes important and when where you can spend your time and your energy mm-hmm. also also changes. You know, I've been very fortunate that I've had a very um, a very busy, yeah, a very busy and a very entertaining in career. It's never really stopped. I've constantly been touring since like 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that respect, it's kind of, I, I feel a little bit rude saying like it's been hard to keep an eye on everything that's going on other than my, 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 my kind of my own world and the people that I work with and constantly trying to bring through the young artists that I'm working on, you know? But I think it's valuable because actually part of the work that you've been doing is kind of flexing your brain in other directions, right? So, you know, working with different kinds of artists and, you know, sort of the Cuba project, for instance, was, you know, was was really kind of some an example of how you can take things in different directions and how you use the skills that you've built up from a regional area or a regional locality and to take it elsewhere and, and sort of throw it in different directions. Yeah, I, I, I guess maybe the way I influence people and, and you know, f- following them from what you say, I find it really difficult to talk about myself like I have any influence or like that. So, um, but yeah, I just try and be, I just try and be myself in the most authentic way mm-hmm. in everything that I do. And if that allows somebody else to go, right, he's gone about it his own way and they think I can go about it my own way as well. And kind of that's what it's about, right? Yeah, but I think because the the infrastructure looks so different to even how it looked 10 years ago, yeah, right, for sure. that, you know, sort of p- people who are coming up as producers mm-hmm. and DJs 10 years ago, mm-hmm. people are now yeah. looking around and saying, okay, what do you yeah. what do you do after that? And yeah. you don't just like fall off a cliff. No, and I, I asked myself the same question like today, you know, how would you go about, if you're a young producer, how would you go about setting up a label and how would you go about promoting that record? I had a conversation with uh, Hank Shock Lee three months ago and he, he was asking me the question, like, so how are you promoting records today? Like, because it's, the landscape has totally changed. And that's, again, when you have to work with, 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 with good people and with younger people that are, have their ear, ear to the ground and constantly thinking about new ways to, to, to reach audiences, but in an authentic way, do you know what I mean? It's not just about, it's not about just, you know, business. Yeah. Because I think there is a way to ethically and morally bring people together through through music and I think if you do that well then hopefully there's a little bit of change for you at the end you know and also to be able to kind of choose and dictate projects so I was thinking about the uh, ruins of empire project with Akala and I'd love to hear you kind of talk about how important that was for you to do and and how different that felt yeah that was really different because Akala if for those of you that don't know that project I got asked to do Akala uh, wrote a, a graphic novel called The Ruins of Empire and the BBC commissioned him to make a 30-minute docu-drama, musical, mm-hmm. spoken word thing. <laughs> it was, it was like a load of different formats or whatever, one, it was kind of new. And, you know, um, he asked me to do the music, which I was, you know, completely honoured by. And, um, yeah, again, it's like, I don't know, I've... I can only say like me being fiercely militant throughout all my career, I've missed many, many good and big business opportunities as a result of that. (laughs) But at the same time, I've always done work that I love doing. And I think for me personally, that's more important Mm -mm. is to do work that I really want to do that's meaningful to me. And um, I just, you just, you know, for anybody that may be thinking about doing that, you just always have to stick 
to your you have to stick to your guns with that mm-hmm. and understand that there are going to be some things you're going to miss along the way maybe you get pushed aside and you get outcast because you don't want to go that way but that's okay you know be prepared to walk alone mm-hmm. um but yeah with the akala thing yeah that's very different uh, it's also like doing the Cuba project. You know, when you're in a room with loads of musicians who have played for like Buena Vista Social Club and you don't actually play any instrument yourself, you kind of feel like a little bit of a fraud in that environment, you know yeah. what I mean? So how do you feel comfortable feeling uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. And that's always been my way of going forward is that you've just got to trust the process and understand that you've been put in these positions for a reason. Mm-hmm. And that reason is because you bring value. You may not know what your value is. Yeah. And I'm not somebody that necessarily does. Mm. Um, but I also trust in the process that, okay, I'm here for a reason. He wants me to do it. So I've just got to be myself and do that. And w- working on a project like that was interesting because it was really challenging. Mm. Um, not from a Carlos point of view, but from the people that were doing the the animation stuff. Mm. But then what you find, you have, you have the uh, opportunity to influence. So our music started influence the animation and how that works. Um, I recently developed a, there's a, there's a, a sleep app called Sleepwave, and I designed the music for these sleep alarms, um, which you can, will peacefully wake you up in the morning. Um, but you know, like I enjoy doing things like that. Like I'm, I'm somebody who's quite uh, like melancholic by nature. Mm. So I don't really want to wake up with an alarm that's really upbeat and summery and happy. I'd rather I'd rather be woken up by something that's a little bit more like a little bit kind of moody and a little bit like <laughs> pensive and mel- melancholic, you know. So, like, it was interesting working on that project. Is like thinking about how do people want to wake up, mm-hmm. um, you know? But it's all to do with sound, and I, I love sound. I love designing sound. So, doing projects like you know, the Ruins of Empires or the Sleepwave app, you know, for me, it feels like it's part of the same thing. So when you sort of when you're focused on this idea of like redesigning sound to make the world feel or operate better or just to kind of be better sound designed, what are some of the things that always come up that you wish that you could redesign the sound of? Like, I I don't know if I think that the tube sound design makes the world better, but I think that if I create something that's true to myself and I can live an authentic existence, somehow by us all being ourselves, I think that somehow makes the world better, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's more of a, a personal thing rather than I'm trying to make make the world better, if that makes sense. Right, okay. So in the way that when you're working with Akala, sort of by proxy, it's sort of uh, reclaiming black storytelling, but it's done in such a creative way that you don't necessarily need to speak to that directly. The, the work does it. Yeah, itself, you yeah, mean? yeah, the work does it itself, absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's great about working with other people is that I find myself being less precious. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, I don't know how many of you in here are producers, but if you are, I'm sure you've had, not necessarily producers, but anybody that is creative with their work, you know, you, you're, you're up at two in the morning and, and, and you've had that amazing idea, you think it's a magic moment or you've had an epiphany and you've, you've put down this melody and you're in this tune and then you go sleep and you wake up the next day and it's absolute trash. But because like you've had that moment with it, you just can't let it go. You've got to make it work. And you kind of do everything to try and right. mold it into the magic that you felt in the moment. Um, when I work with other people, I don't do any of that. And that's why I think as I've got older, I'm mm-hmm. fed up of just working on my own and you know, fighting with my own inner thoughts and demons about 
that magic moment, you know. And it's much nicer to be able to throw things away and and and, and just start something new because that isn't working, you know. So I, I I really like collaborating. Does that does that feeling that kind of um, you know, magic moment moment? Does that feel the same as like when you were a teenager using like reason or freely? Yeah, it's that. It's that. It's that. I guess in a way, it's just like discovery like I always look at making music as like I'm an explorer you have all of these things around you and you just explore and explore and explore and explore and then you discover something you stumble across it and you hold on to that and then you build on it and build on it and try and create something that's yours and then once you feel like you've done everything you can to it then you give it to everybody else and they can make it theirs if they want so yeah it's for me that is what freedom is you know mm-hmm creativity yeah and it's a much more inspiring approach i think because sometimes artists talk about the sort of malaise of the idea that you make something beautiful and then the magic goes and it's transient and you're always trying to recapture it or maybe if you haven't been in the studio for a long time you lose it but actually maybe your approach is more about recognizing that it's always in you it's just about finding other avenues is that that how you feel yeah i guess i guess so and just it's hard to it's hard to put it into words just because it's it's what I am. I do, I've done it for so long, mm. almost every day for most of my my life. You know, I'm at the age of fifteen, we're writing writing lyrics down and, and mixing records. It's it's just part of that process. I I find listening to music, playing music, making music, whether I'm playing music at home, playing music with my kids, playing music to an audience, again is just a, I feel a real sense of of freedom in that. And in those moments, there's no kind of like want. There's no need, mm. um, and yeah, in, in in a world where our freedom seems to be getting pulled away from us all of the time, and when there is, you know, we're kind of bombarded in in a world where you know, let's you know, we buy this and we buy that, you know, kind of getting away from having to pay bills and having to go shop and all of the mundane things. Music has always provided that for me, mm-hmm. so and that's why I'm fiercely protective of it. Of, of mine you know yeah um i'd like to talk about some of your sort of newer projects but i'm just really interested in before we get to that how you feel about the idea of dubstep nostalgia as a concept like do you feel like it throws you back to the past when you maybe you want to move out of that period of life no i've never i've never been stuck in the past so it's kind of like it's nice to go back there and experience it it's mm. not like i play it lots of nostalgic dubstep events we don't put on nostalgic dubstep events but i bet you're asked about forward a lot and that's fine (laughs) it was a beautiful time for many many people and it 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 it, it created you know Mm. a domino effect for so many things to come later Mm. so no i've I've got no problem going back there but if you're if you're asking this might sound really bad and i don't mean it maybe the way that it sounds but do i want to play to a room full of people that are only my age all my old songs from back then, like absolutely not. I couldn't think of anything worse doing that on a regular basis. <laughs> like doing it every now and then is great, but it's about today, it's about tomorrow, and it's uh, right. it's what you do today is why I think I'm still relevant is because of the sets that I play today, you know? Yeah, but also because there's waves of rediscovery. And yes. so, you know, yeah. there, there will be a, a kind of, I mean, I think there is a generation actually, and probably one after that and after that, mm-hmm. who will always want to talk about a specific period in time and want to hear specific and songs that's, and that's, that's good you know yeah. I mean? and I'm, I'm happy to i'm happy to indulge in that for sure mm-hmm. good. I'm, I'm not trying to run away from my past 
Um, tell me about uh, recent projects. I'm thinking about um, Green Tea Peng, but I'm also like really interested in yeah, what's what's inspiring you at the moment and and how you're sort of throwing your brain in different directions. Yeah, you know, I, I, as I say, I really enjoy collaborating. So you know, getting to work with people like Green Tea Peng is great because it makes me create music differently, but at the same time. I still want to make music <laughs> that's designed for a sound system. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, I find like, how can I bring, that's what's nice about creativity. It's like, how can you merge different worlds together, you know? Um, the most recent project I've done was with Joe Armand Jones, who mm-hmm. is, uh, for anybody that doesn't know, he's a, just an incredible musician, mainly pianist. And throughout lockdown, we decided we would work on a project together it came about because he was making an album and he asked if I had any beats uh, that I could send him because we did a project for um, the uh, um, the Basquiat mm-hmm. uh, museum that was happening in London several years ago mm-hmm. we got asked to do a project based on Basquiat's paintings you know so we did that and I worked with Joe Armand Jones and Tobias Garcia that so that's how I met Joe and then he asked me to do some stuff for his album I sent him a load of music and he liked so many of the tracks he said why don't we just do a project together so throughout lockdown we were just like bouncing ideas remotely mm. and uh, now we're going to be performing our show live in in January uh, next year so that will be with a full band and on a big sound system that's great as usual in a dark room so you probably won't <laughs> see anything that's happening but you you'll be able to hear it you know yeah it's funny it's funny because it's it's maybe not necessarily uh music that lends itself particularly well not not to streaming but to a period of what a lot of kind of artists were doing which were doing live streams Mm -hmm. during lockdown and how did you feel about how to approach that or did you not want to you know what there was one there was a side of the live streaming that i kind of felt was a little bit vulgar if i'm honest with you like when everybody was like struggling lockdown, you had these people like from their beach house in Miami doing like a live stream. And I was like, I kind of, I didn't like that, you know, if I'm honest with you. Mm-hmm. Not to say that they were trying to flex or anything like that, but I just thought it was a little bit distasteful. Um, so I just wanted to, when all of that stuff was going on, I just wanted to just stay away from everything, to be honest with you. I didn't really want to be seen. Um, not because I get walk around and people notice me, but you know, living this lifestyle for as long as I have, like it does take its toll physically, mentally, you know? And that's always a good thing that people talk about today is like the mental health of of, 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 of people in this industry. Um, I needed a rest, to be honest with you. And in 2019, I had actually, um, well, if I go back to 2017, I actually collapsed several times in 2017. And that's what kind of made me start thinking I'm exhausted, you know? So I started changing a few things in my life. And then um, come to 2019, I decided that I wanted to be in the studio throughout all of 2020. So I would take a handful of shows. So like 2019, I just worked hard so I could take a year off of gigging basically. And then all the lockdown happened. So in a strange way, I'd kind of prepared to be missing for a year. But it's kind of almost like, it it really forced my hand, it's like, you ask for this time off, so what are you going to do with it? You know what I mean? Are you, do you want the world to all of a sudden go back to the way it was? Mm-hmm. Or is this an opportunity to like look at things differently and, and come back a little bit differently, you know, as well? 
not necessarily in the way that you play music to people, but just in terms of your mindset, you know, because it's easily it's easy to get caught up in just playing shows, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it's easy to reproduce it when it's something you've been doing for such a long time. For sure. For mm -hmm. sure. So yeah, it was an opportunity to, yeah, just just be myself and. You know, I started doing. I started doing this when I was like in my twenties. I'm 42 now, so it's like your perception of everything is completely different. Like at my age, do I want to be making like 140 bangers? I kind of don't. Right. I like. I listen to different music. I want to make different music when I'm in the studio. I love playing that music. So don't get me wrong. Like when you see me in the in the in the dance and I'm going ape shit when I'm DJing because I love dancing. Anybody that's seen me play knows that I move a lot when I play. I love the music that I'm playing. Mm -hmm. I don't want to play multi-genre. I don't want to do none of that. I love playing the music that I play. Um, but that's been very a very confronting question to me is because if I'm not making it mm -hmm. and everybody s defines me mm -hmm. by the music that I've made, but I'm not making that music anymore, like like that poses a, an, in an interesting question, you know, yeah. one that's been quite confronting. Yeah, but I, there's a lot to be said for making music that is making people want to dance after such a, a period of inertia, you know, and the kind of what the dancers give to the space and, you know, what you're giving to them always feels like an exchange. And so I think that that's a gift. But maybe, yeah, m maybe if you can just leave us on some things that are inspiring the work that you're making now. So... If it's not the desire to make 140 bangers, even though I think you still should. <laughs> you know, I, I always I always come back to the same thing, and I mentioned it earlier. Like I, because I, the way that I look at making music is like split. There's one side of me that is like the vibes man. Yeah, doesn't care how it really sounds, but you're just vibing on it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And there's the other half of me which is like the scientist. So I'm worrying about the compression on the snare and I'm worrying about the levels and I'll spend ages tinkering with this. And both of the processes are beautiful. But when you lean towards me personally, when I lean more toward the science side, when I'm being too analytical of everything, the joy and the fun goes away from being creative. So I have to constantly remind myself that there was a time when I had absolutely no idea how to mix down a record. Mm but we still played those records out and people still enjoyed dancing to them. Mm -hmm. So if that's one thing I can leave a note on is just like, just be free with your creativity, you know? Oh, I love that. Mala, thank you so, so much for sharing with us. Thank you for listening to RA's Exchange with Mala and Kieran Yates. You can browse our full archive of episodes on your favourite podcast platform. Be sure to subscribe to The Exchange to receive updates from us. And if you love the show, please do leave us a review and a rating as it really helps get our stories to more ears. Until next time, take care. <laughs>